Hi and welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. I am joined by a very close friend of mine, so that in itself makes this slightly different, but that's not the reason why you're here. You would be here even if you weren't, my friend. You are a newly established author of a book called The Boy With The Thorn In His Side by Ian McMillan. How did that come about? Tell us a wee bit about yourself. Um, it's just so Derek Murray, my Ian McMillan. Um, I'm a first-time author. Um, I don't really know, to be honest with you. I was thinking about this when I was coming over, and I've always been a keen reader, right? I've probably, ironically, since I left the school, I started reading books. There was a guy called Jay Allen brought out a book about the casual thing when I was about 16. And it was the first book I ever really read because it was something I was interested in. And this guy wrote in kind of local dialect and all that kind of stuff. And I read it cover for cover in like a day or something, right? And from then on, I thought, oh, I've kind of got hooked on reading books. So I always had a book on the go since then, right? I've always been an avid reader. And I've said many times that I'd like to write a book. And a few of my mates have said to me since this came out, you always said you want to write a book. And I thought, I saw I did. I always forgot I'd said that. So I think when I got my first PC back in the day, remember when you had to like get the cable and go to the house and plug in the phone and all that? It was back then. I'd done a bit of writing then. You're showing your age now because there were people watching and listening to this thinking, what is that guy talking about? Uh, you couldn't use the phone and all that kind of stuff if you were on the internet. It was kind of back then. I it? remember it, but I'm ju- <laughs> I just know there'll be folk watching this saying, what, what? So I was kind of in my late 20s then. Uh-huh. Uh, that's really showing my age now. So... I used to sit, generally when I couldn't, if I'm honest, generally when I couldn't sleep, but I, I was kind of troubled a bit, I'd sit and write stuff down. I'd kind of journal, if you like, right? I'd write bits and bobs. But I never wrote a whole story or whatever. I wrote wee poems and I wrote bits of stories and I wrote this and that and I never showed it to anybody. No through shame or anything. It was just my thing. I just something I'd done. So I'd done bits and bobs then. And I've always worked in an office so I can type a little bit, right? Um... But during the lockdown, see the very first lockdown we had, when it was like batting down the hatches, you couldn't do anything yep. apart from you walk your dog. It was a, during that period I wrote the first half of this. I think it was probably just sick of being on Netflix and I was working from home and stuff like that, so the laptop was always out. So if MD for your works, listen to this, you were, you were doing this in work time? Not during work time, obviously after <laughs> 5pm, Derek. So I kind of wrote the first half of it about then and... I don't think I had any grand plan or anything. I think, again, the first chapter, i just done what I'd always done and wrote a wee bit of a kind of story. And it just evolved organically for there, really. I just found I really enjoyed doing it. I found it therapeutic. I don't mean I was exercising my demons doing it or anything. Like I just really enjoyed doing it. It made me feel good doing it. Yep. So I continued with it. I want, to, I want to touch a wee bit on yourself before we go into the book, because I think for, for those that are thinking about buying this, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, for those that have read it, they, they'll understand that a lot of the book, despite it being fiction, and you touch on this yourself, is is loosely based on experiences that you've had in your life. Yep. So I suppose you were you were born and brought up in, in South Lanarkshire, yep. Stonehouse, Lark Hallway, uh, brought up a, a football fan around the casual scene, as you touched on. Yep. You know, the first book that you read was, was about that, and that's something that got you hooked. Tell us a wee bit about, about you growing up, just to paint a bit of a picture on... Well, you know, how we got, how we get to this book, if that makes sense. The, the, if anybody asks me what's that about, people I know know I've, I've brought a book and know what's that about, and I would describe it as being semi-autobiographical, right? It's obviously a fictional story, and I don't think my life deems an autobiography, right? But what I mean by that is, it's, I wrote about what I know about, right? I wrote about what my experience in life are, and what I, I felt was true, right? What was true to me, right? 
And I think if you're going to write about feelings or anybody's life path, you've got to be able to have some sort of authenticity in it. And you know yourself better than anybody else, don't you? So Exactly. Aye. So I just kind of... The, the book's obviously got a big theme about recovery in it, right? Recovery for goals. I'm in recovery myself. And I think if you're going to enter the world of recovery, if you want to move forward in recovery, there's got to be a time in reflection when you look back the way and you start thinking, well, nowhere did it all go wrong, but what bits of myself do I need to change if I want to move forward in a more positive fashion? Yep. So while I was writing, that kind of stuff was going through my mind. Um, some I've looked at many times before back in the past, but that was the first time I'd kind of put it to own paper, if you like. So I kind of start where I go back and I just start thinking, well, what was primary school like? How did I feel then? Um, and the beautiful thing about it being a fictional character doesn't need to be exactly like you. You can take aspects of you and make it more extreme. Do you yep. know what I mean? Yep. You can make them tougher than you or scareder than you or whatever it may be. You can take the emotions and you can pump them up a wee bit. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, the, the fictional character in itself, the, the main character is called Frankie. Uh, in the opening chapter of the book starts with Frankie sitting... Uh, in, in a room with a therapist mm -hmm. uh, and I think that really sets the scene for going forward you know and, and you can now that we've we've opened up and you've said you know that you are in recovery that kind of sets the tone for the book but it also shows this is the, the message that we want to get across for the outset I suppose to the reader yeah. you know that, that, that it is important to, to go and seek help or speak to people and from your personal experience let, let's touch on where you were before you got to that point well, I think the book touches on it quite accurately. There's, I mean, there's some bits in the book are just out and out true. There's some mm -hmm. bits I've made up because it fitted better with the story. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I'll kind of go back to the start in the book to talk about that, to be honest with you, right? Sure. Because I think if you look at it kind of from a therapeutical point of view, if you're trying to psychoanalyse yourself, I think it goes a wee bit deeper than that. I think you need to look at the cultural differences, right? Okay. And what I was thinking about in that will... Well, what choices did I really have at some point in my life? Because you think, you grow up in South Lanarkshire like I did, um, it seemed as though you get to a point where, you know that awkward age where you're maybe 12 or 13, childhood's kind of out the window now and you're not really doing any childish stuff, but you're no an adult in any sort of shape or form, you're trying to play it, be a big boy, yeah. and suddenly somebody gives you a bottle of cider, and just as if everything else in childhood disappeared overnight, and that's how it seemed to me. For their own in, it was like, when we got to drink, when we get my next carry out, planning the next drink, what have you tasted, what we getting? And you quickly graduate for cider, a vodka, buckfast, and you're moving through tonic wines and all that stuff. And when you look back on that, you think, well, what kind of choices have I got when I'm growing up with everybody I know and all my peers are doing it as a kid? And you think, who and who's going to stand up in the face of that? It's no peer pressure in the sense that everybody's trying to go, do it, do it, shite back, and then like that. It's not like that. But you want to be part of the group. You want to be seen as being included, included in the group. So you you go along with it. And within a short space of time, you want to be running that gig, really. So that's kind of how I experienced and That's how loads of people I know. I mean, ask anybody in Scotland, you know, when they started drinking. People say I started late, I was 15. Do you know what I mean? Most people start drinking really young. And you think, well, what choices did I really have there? Do you know what I mean? Because you're a kid, really. And... What I realised thereafter was, for that point in my life, I couldn't wait to get myself into the pub. Because you got to football, and I was fairly tall for my age, so you got to the pub at 15 and stuff like that before the match. And this was quite good fun at the time, do you know what I mean? There wasn't any consequences to be paid, really, do you know what I mean? It was a peek into the adult world, and you were enjoying yourself and all that sort of stuff. 
But I was a regular in the pub before I was 15. I was getting barred out of pubs well before I was 18. And you kind of develop an attitude at a young age. What you do on a Friday, Saturday night is you get drunk. It's not for question. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you're boring. Right? And I think most days will have developed that attitude at a very young age. Um, if you want enjoyment in life, it focuses on a good alcohol. Yeah. And, but, and I think for many people listening to this who have grown up in, in West Central Scotland, they'll be able to relate to that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they go down the park with their pals or, in, for example, you and, and the book you talk about going down the graveyard with your pals mm-hmm. and, and having your first bottle of wine, etc. Right? And, and you've says there might not have been many other options for us. And for people that are maybe listening to this out with Scotland, they'll be thinking, what are you talking about? You know, I, I don't know how you would explain that to people who aren't brought up in that environment, that this is a, a social norm, that when kids get to 13, 14, they, they turn to alcohol. Mm. You know, why, why are there no playing sports? And you've, you've heard all the stories, I oh, was a great football player, or you even touch on it in the book, you know, he was a brilliant boxer, one of your mates, but he finds drugs and booze at such a young age, or he finds women, and that's him off a path, you know, and it's what could have been. And anybody I wrote about in the book is effectively somebody I've known or known of or inspired by somebody I've met, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's a, it's a well-known, it's a well-trodden path in Scotland, guys doing that, having big talents at football or boxing or whatever it might be. Yep. And they get to 16 and their interests lie elsewhere and the training goes out the one day and they end up going down a totally different path. Yep. And it seems to be, again, it's kind of cultural norm for that to be the case. Yep. Um, developing that that mentality towards alcohol where by the time you're probably about 18, your mindset is you drink Friday, Saturday. If it's September weekend, you drink Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. If you're on holiday, you drink every night. If it's Christmas, you drink every night. And life becomes a cycle where Monday you wake up in that fetal position full of paranoia and guilt. Tuesday, you feel a bit better, you've kind of shook it off Wednesday. If you can eat again, you're a bit fresher. Thursday, might drink the night. Friday, you're back on it. So you're kind of seven-day weeks took up with two good days and the rest of it's yeah. kind of plodding through treacle to get to the next Friday again. Yeah. And that's if you've got any money left during the week, you've probably done your whole wages in Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know? How much did the, the football scene play a, play a part in that, in, in the drinking culture and the, you know, being part of feeling... Feelings part of something, you know, almost making you feel special as if you're involved in something bigger. Because you look at the book, uh, and it's you know, it's, it's obviously your hand that's on there, but it's got the Burberry coat on. That's obviously a big influence for yourself. What was? Well, I, th- I think my influence on there. What I again write about what you know about and what I was. I try to one talk about the mind, uh, the alcoholic or the addict is fairly obsessive. Mm-hmm. And for me, the first thing I was obsessed about, like many other people. It was close. It was close when I was a, a young age. Again, looking back on my life, I remember when I was really young, like maybe just the tail end of primary school sort of thing, where you're starting to figure out a bit about fashion and you want your hair cut a certain way and all that kind of stuff. Where the difference I felt when you may have two or three bits and bobs in your wardrobe, like Fred Perry or Stay Press and all that kind of stuff in my day, and how different I felt when I put my own stuff on go to school and then the next day your mum would leave out these flared strides and it would be like feels if you're an arse well not to school you know and I just remember how the difference it made me feel wearing my chosen items and it never really left me after I, I remember through school when the whole casual thing came along it was completely different and but you said you know you're for South Lanarkshire you're for Stonehouse area yep. how did you go about following Motherwell how did that come about well 
in the Stone and Cedar, there's Stonehouse, I would tell Clark Academy, so mm. pretty obviously in Scotland, most people support Rangers. Um, I wasn't actually a big football fan when I was young, so I never really chose a football team before that. I was probably drawn to football because some guys I knew who were a few years older than me were Motherwell fans, and they would go to Fir Park, and there seemed to be this fashion element attached to it that attracted me. There seems to be this element where it was about training shoes and jackets and haircuts and all that kind of stuff. And I was really drawn to that. And I think what I hope I put across in the book was I tried to put across how important the clothes were and the kind of obsessive nature of that kind of thing. Yep. It seemed to be an obsession. And also, if you're a guy like Frankie in the book who's got a background where he's not very close to his parents, and I don't think a lot of people have got that during the teenage years in particular because you're maybe playing up a bit. Yeah. Your mum and dad's on your case all the time. You're going to need some kind of connection for somewhere. You're going to need some kind of tribe to be part of. So he finds it at the football. And I very much relate to that. I found my tribe at the football. And Towards the end of the book, I don't want to ruin it for those that have still to read it, but you actually described you know, the people that you went to the football with as like family. Mm-hmm. I think that's very true. And I think that's a kind of misconception for people out with that scene might see it as being Neanderthal-like. And to me, it never did seem like to me because of the attachment to upper-class clothing labels. It seemed to be aspirational to me. Okay. Do you know what I mean? It took me into... When I was young, you were shopping at Wisher Market for a pair of stay press when you were young and then suddenly you got to jean shops for stuff and then within a wee while you're wandering about Princess Square looking for things. And I didn't go to Princess Square. Guys like me didn't shop in Princess Square if it wasn't for this casual thing coming in and the hunt for designer labels. I wouldn't have took me into Princess Square or places like that. And was there ever, when you were into these places, you know, as young working-class males, people looking at you thinking you shouldn't be here? Aye, but I wasn't alone at the time. See, the, this casual thing had been on a few years before I got into it. Okay. So the... There was loads of guys in the town doing that. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't. A, it was a cult at the time. You could spot somebody who went to football and was interested in the dressers thing, but just looking at them back then, you couldn't do that now, probably. But back then, you could. Yeah. So it was this cult thing, and there was loads of people going into the same shops looking for the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So it was. Um, it was something you could identify somebody pretty easily what they liked. And listen, I, I know that you have a romantic image of this casual scene to a certain degree. You know, it brought up made a big part of your uh, young adolescent life but you say it was the addiction towards the clothes there's no getting away from the fact that there was a lot of violence involved there there was but I mean I think that's been blown a wee bit out of proportion at times obviously there's loads of footage out there showing loads of violence at football matches mm-hmm. I don't think that was part of it let's shall we say I think there's some guys wrote books in recent times about the casual scene and it very much documents the clothing thing but kind of prior to that Loads of it was just all about violence. It was all like, oh, 20 hours walked around the corner and there was 200 of them and we steamed them and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I didn't want anything like that in my book because that's not how I see it and that's not the type of guy I am personally. So I just wanted to, to be this guy's pretty obsessed with clothes. He gets into clothes and it's an obsession for him. And I wanted to touch on how he found some kind of connection within the casuals and it made him feel part of something. He had a family unit within the casuals, which might seem odd to the outsider looking in. Do you know what I mean? It's that old cliche though, isn't it? Like for those that aren't involved, they'll never understand. Exactly. And I think I think there's a lot of that's very, very true. I mean, he says that there's been many books written about the casual scene. It's like, we done them, they done us, blah, blah. A lot of bravado. And it, it does seem that you've no went down that route. 
Was, was that in your head when you were writing it? I definitely. Yeah. It definitely was. I think for a couple of reasons, I think most guys, I mean, I'm pushing 50, right? So guys who are in the casual, you start with in the late 50s, now loads of them. Okay. We're kind of bored with all that now. Do you know what I mean? And nobody really wants to read it. I, I wanted to have a wee bit more depth in it than that, if I'm honest. So, no, I just wanted to be honest about some of the youth cults I grew up with and, and start off with that. And some of it was fun to start off with. I wanted to kind of document a journey for a young man who had fun in his younger days. Pubs were great. Football was great. It was fun. And how there was a progression time he gets to his late 20s, things are a bit different for him. Yep. You touched quite heavily as well on, on the music scene, you know, and, and I know that's something for knowing you well that, you know, has dominated your life and that, that still, you know, you keep very close to your heart. Uh, Paul Weller, God, the, the bands that you listed in there were, were endless, but I suppose did that shape some of the writing in this? Was there, was there a lot of you thinking about how much did the music play a part in, in my life? You know, was I out at gigs quite regularly? Was that, you, you touched on going to a rave and ending up, was it Easter House or Castle Milk? Aye, aye, aye. Uh, well, there was loads of that kind of stuff back then and I think that was a kind of changing culture at the time where the football casual thing was fading out slightly just because of the rise of the, the whole rave culture mm. and people's... What I wanted to document in that really was, if I'm honest... When I was young and people like me were young and they started drinking at a very early age, when I was at school, for example, drugs just weren't about, right? I make myself sound really old here, right? But drugs just weren't about. When I was at school, people drank at weekends, right? People didn't drink at school. Drugs weren't around. If you were an absolute crackpot when I was at school, you buzz glue, right? Guys who were a bit older than my generation. But when I came about 16 or 17, just as I left school, Suddenly, culturally, things changed a bit and drugs became a social norm, right? I think overnight, cannabis just became a massive thing. And I think young guys, like me in particular, I wanted to be seen as though I knew what was happening and you might be cool and all that, that sort of age. So your experiment with cannabis at a very young age, maybe 16 for me, probably 17 maybe. And overnight again, I'm smoking dope every night like most of my mates were. So it seemed to be that changed the culture very quickly and the whole rave thing had people going around the country and mingling with everybody else. And I think, if you look at the whole rave culture, it's documented very well in a lot of it. And there was loads of positives come out of that. Um, there was loads, some people look back on it in the best time of their life, right? There'll be loads of guys in my generation look back on that. Some guys in their 50s still go to clubs quite regular or go to street rave events and stuff like that. There's, the majority of people probably had a great deal of enjoyment out of that. However, what I think has not been shown in a lot of times is when, yeah, you're, when you're living that lifestyle for so long, there's a price to be paid for it. Yeah. And I think a lot of guys would, if you're one of the lucky ones, you might have ended up on antidepressants or you stop drinking and you stop taking drugs but you drink heavily now. Or you'll have faded out of that whole ecstasy thing and you're really into cocaine now. Or if you're really unfortunate, you might no longer be with us or some guys in prison sentences, etc, etc. So there is a, a certain element of any of that kind of stuff. There is a price to pay with it. Do you know what I mean? Not everybody gets off scot-free. Do you know what I mean? Other guys go to harder drugs. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I think it started off and there was loads of good things about it. However, there's other bits of not so good. There's this book that is very much focused on, on recovery and, and you've been quite vocal about that. But... <clears throat> What I find really, really important about this is similar books about the casual scene, you know, about the dance scene, haven't really spoke about what you've just said there, you know, that this takes its toll. Mm -hmm. 
when was the point for you where you realised it was taking its toll? If you don't mind me getting a wee bit personal on sorry, that. Sorry, it's not personal. Uh, because I, I know for a fact that there will be many people watching this that will think, do you know what, I'm still at the stage just now, you, you said that it was, you know, your late 20s where you, you started thinking about, you know, recovery or, or trying to make a different path for yourself. There will be many people that are older than that and younger than that thinking, I'm very much stuck in a rut. Yep. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm living that lifestyle that Ian's talking about mm -hmm. here. You know, I'm, I'm going to work Monday to Friday, but my head's not really in it the first few days of the week. Then I'm on it Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I will elaborate a wee bit, right? I will get to your point though. Um, I think, see, if it come, I, I'm a big reader, as I said before, right? I've, I've read loads of books on addiction, um, with guys' biographies and stuff like that, and loads of them have got a place, and some are very relevant, and some of them are really, really entertaining, right? But they're generally always about some individual who's lived a lifestyle none of us will ever see, right? It's always about some guy who's maybe slept on the streets long term, been in and out of prison, better still, he's in prison in Japan or Thailand or something, or some guy who's under an extreme addiction with heroin for a long period of time and the terrors that go with that, right? And for your average guy reading that kind of story, again, it's very entertaining and it's alien to them though, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at that as what a guy with a drink problem or an alcoholic or an addict is, you're going to read it and go, well, that's definitely not me, right? I'm not like that. There was part of the book that I read and it was uh, talking about when uh, the therapist gave Frankie homework right I don't, I don't want to give too much away about the book but I think this bit's really important uh, and you, the character Frankie took it away uh, and thought right I'll have a wee look at that when I get home he opened it up and it says I can't remember how many points there was have you had the following problems with alcohol is it affecting your work have you had blackouts you know have you done things that you regret have you upset people you love etc and I was looking at that and thinking I don't even see myself as a too big a drinker but so many of them I'm ticking the boxes. And then it said, if you have experienced more than one of these, you could potentially be an alcoholic. Is that fair to say? Aye, I think that aye, I think it's pretty much you've paraphrased a wee bit. Aye, it's yeah. pretty much it. Aye. Aye. And, and I thought, you know, that's that's really relatable. It, it must be for so many people. But then it went on to say, Frankie's having this argument in his head saying, I'm not an alcoholic. You know, the, the people that I see the, who I would class as alcoholics are people on the street, are folk that look a bit scruffy, folk who don't have jobs. Listen, I'm dressing smart, as you've talked, spoke about. I'm holding down a decent job. You know, I, I can't fall into that trap. Well, I think partly what you said there was that word alcoholic. People hate that word. Do yeah. you know what I mean, nobody wants to be labelled with that word for a start. Mm -hmm. um, if you generally say that word to anybody, they'll kind of recoil for you because there's no way they're one of them. Like you say, everybody's got this preconceived idea. You need to meet a certain criteria to be an alcoholic. You probably need to drink every day. You need to probably have fits if you don't drink. You're probably homeless, etc., etc. That's what the kind of masses view an alcoholic like, or maybe some celebrity like Robbie Williams who's been in rehab or whatever. Right? That's kind of alcoholics. But there's no many people out there who think, well, I come into that category because, like you said, they're kind of holding down a job maybe, or they've had some achievement in life, but they'll be accepting stuff that's unacceptable. They'll accept that Monday I'm paranoid. Tuesday, I'm, I'm just getting it together. I spend three quarters of my income on booze or drugs, etc., etc. And again, it becomes a social norm because if you're if you're living that lifestyle, like can attracts like. Do you know what I mean? If you're going to be like that, you're going to sit in the pub with the guys that do that as well. So you you compare yourself with your mates, and they'll probably do the same stuff you're doing. 
and there might be one easy it's a bit worse and you'll be thinking forget like him all day something about this <laughs> yeah, but what I experienced personally was to go back to that when I was young starting off the drinking I was always what you would term a greedy drinker right I was always first finished my drink always probably one of the drunkest in the company etc etc but I think again cultural norm in Scotland bad behaviour is rewarded when you're a teenager do you know what I mean? It's like he's mental, he's some laugh, etc., etc. So you'll play the crowd a wee bit and that kind of stuff. So norm, we're not taught to drink socially for the word go. Nobody phoned me up and said, do you want to go out for a couple of drinks? We'd be getting mad with it the night we get on it, that kind of stuff. So even the language we used was very much about oblivion. So oblivion was what we saw when you went for a drink. So I was taught that stuff very, very young. And what I realised was the stuff that I go up to when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, I just kind of shook it off. Do you know what I mean? You'd wake up sometimes and think, God, I couldn't remember if I walked in last night I got a taxi. Was I wee, wee Derek? Was I wee such and such? And you'd have the arrogance of youth about you and you'd get up and you'd get shifty and go out and probably date again or you'd go about your business. And it didn't cling to you very much. It didn't cause you very much grief in any sort of way. But I think with the nature of alcoholism is progressive. So... It takes off you more and more as the years have gone on and it does it very, very slowly. It chips away at you and chips away at you. So this arrogance of youth you've got when you're in your late teens is becoming less and less and your self-confidence is eradicating slightly where and along with that, your nervous system's getting shot to pieces. So you're not getting up the next day and shaking off quite as easy as you were in, in, yeah. in the early days. You're waking up. The, the, the fear that obviously is well documented these days, the fear's getting greater, the paranoia's getting greater and it starts to affect your life when you're no under the influence. Wednesday when you're no drinking, you're still doing a wee bit, you know, and you're losing the ability to speak up for yourself the same way, you're no quite as confident as you once were. So I didn't quite realise that some of the stuff, it, it crept up on me as the years went on. I mean, I stopped drinking when I was 29, so I had a fair run at it. I probably drank for about 15 years, so I had a fair run at it, but I just couldn't shake off some of that stuff and some of the negative stuff that happened to us in my teens just got greater. I would say it just got greater. Yep. I suppose, like, <clears throat> one of the things that I find interesting is maybe therapy nowadays is becoming a bit more normal, but not to go back to your, your old age again, Ian, but back then it wasn't, you know, that must have been quite a step. Ah, uh, well, I think what happened to me was I played a bit with this stop and drinking for a few years before I actually did it. And generally my motivator would be having made a bit of an arse out the weekend before or waking up um, with extreme paranoia or fear. And I'm sorry, that's it, I'm off it. That old Scottish thing, I'm off it. And I could maybe stay off it for a few weeks at a time sometimes. Um, the next weekend I would plan and doing something else. But in reality was, I was kind of obsessed with staying off as well and reinventing myself as somebody else who I really wasn't because I wasn't addressing any of the underlying issues. Yeah. And I could go periods of time without drinking and it was fairly easy when your motivation is fear to start off with mm -hmm. but as the weeks progress and the paranoia disappears and your nervous system rebalances itself a wee bit it's easy to fall back into that aye. trap aye. the boredom kind of kicks in a wee bit and all your pals are in the pub and you're thinking I've got to do myself this weekend I've watched 10 DVDs last week and I've, I've phoned a Chinese or whatever and you're trying to think of other stuff and I always remember looking at other guys I knew who weren't they like me? You know the guys who always went to the gym back then or if they didn't really drink or some young guy was renting his motor and he had a flash car or something and I thought, how can I know about one of the guys? And truth was, I just wouldn't like one of the guys, you know? So 
I think I played a bootweight for a bit and tried to stop or I've tried to moderate in the respect that I'll go a bit later night. Friday night I'll just go down the pub at nine or I'll not drink Friday, I'll only drink Saturday or I'll not drink wine, I'll only drink beer. Uh, I'll only take a certain amount of money out with me, all that stuff. I tried loads of that kind of stuff to try and moderate this. And I think if if you're one of the guys like me who comes into that category, when you start drinking, you kind of stop, right? When you put it into your system, you just kind of put it down again. Well, it doesn't matter what games you've got to play with yourself, you've got to look for oblivion when you start drinking. So my experience was that that's what happened to me each and every time. How much of the people that you were hanging about with did you have to cut out? You referenced this in the book, and I think for... For many people, it's like, it's not that they don't want to stop it, they just don't want to lose their pals, or they don't want to stop going to the Fitba, or they don't want to stop, you know, hanging around and going to the clubs and doing the things that they enjoy. Because a large part of it, you're sacrificing, aren't you? I remember you says, you know, I, I didn't really feel like myself after a certain mm. period. Well, I think initially when I stopped drinking, some of the guys you're hanging about with are just drinking buddies, to be honest, right? They're, they're no mates. Some of them are brand new guys and they're decent guys. But when I stopped drinking, I just didn't have much in common with them any longer. So our lives just drifted in different directions. Some of the guys have kind of grew up a little bit now and they're not living how they were. Some of them were doing the same thing. I know some of them were there. A few of my mates initially, I didn't see very much, but I've, I've reconnected with them now and we do stuff that doesn't involve drinking. Mm-hmm. Right? Whereas we might go hill walking or whatever it may be, right? And we still keep in touch, right? If you're, your mates are your mates. But I think in the initial period of sobriety, you need to can I go through an uncomfortable period where you may feel a bit lonely or you may feel a bit like an outsider for a wee while until such times as you, you rebuild your self-esteem, you rebuild your self-confidence and then the world's your lobster, as they say, do you know what I mean? You can date anything you want. And I kind of realise how alcohol made my life very small. Financially, it makes your life very small. You're, you're kind of burdened by the pub. You're burdened by how much money you're spending in there, etc., when you get all that but you can start doing anything you want anytime you want and one of the biggest things was you lose that mentality that funds Friday, Saturday you can do anything you want any day of the week do you know what I mean because you can arrive everywhere and you can you're not waking up rough the next day so it's a big issue one last thing that we want, I want to touch on around the, the recovery process is in the book you know Frankie meets a friend I believe his name was Michael uh, and he he says, listen, come along and try, the, try these 12 steps. Yep. Frankie's response was, I'm not getting into any of that Jesus push. You know, and, and I think for a lot of people, recovery is kind of, they think of it as being related to religion or Christianity, and that certainly put Frankie off at first. I, I think that's that's a bit of a misconception in some respect. What, what I put in the books too, right, in, in relating to 12-step fellowships and the 12-step programme, they talk about a power greater than yourself that you choose, right? So it doesn't mean you pick a religion, right? The the unfortunate part of that, I suppose, is that guys who are in recovery tend to be extremists. Yeah, yeah. So particularly in early recovery, if they choose to use that as a tool to help them recover, a lot of guys will take it to the extreme. Do you know what I mean? A lot of guys will take it to some level extreme. It's like guys who will get exercise might take it to the extreme. Yeah. Or meditating. Or, or meditating or yeah. whatever it might be. Do you know what I mean? For me, my extremities was what I tried to touch around the book. I've mad collector with records and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's really up to the individual if you want to go down the God route or not, right? But the 12-step programme is designed to kind of clear up the wreckage of the past and live in the moment where you can live a bit more of a functional life and it works very well. But in relation to how extreme you want to take that in relation to the higher power, it's down to the individual. One part that I really want to touch on from that 12 step is, I don't know if it was step eight or nine, and it talks about visiting things that you've done in your past that you regret. 
And I, I feel for many people that must be the hardest part. Well, see if you want to, if you want to succeed in recovery, you want to live a life where your anxieties are at a minimum, shames at a minimum, and you can feel alright about yourself. Right? It's about rebuilding self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-worth. Right? That's the whole point of the game, and feeling comfortable and sobriety to live a whole life. If you've entered recovery and you've got a big wreckage of the past behind you, some people have got more excessive wreckage than others, right? So you may have people out there where you owe money to, you owe an apology to, etc, etc, because your behaviour or you'll be under the influence. It may not even just be when you're under influence, just because of the state of mind you're at when you're in active addiction. So if you don't deal with that kind of stuff, you'll find yourself walking around about as they're looking down the aisle to see who's there because you're scared to bump into somebody for the past. Yep. Right, so the best way to address that is to look at it head on approach your people and try and sort things out and it doesn't mean that you're going to be best buddies with everybody but try to make peace with it so that you can walk off into the sunlight and you can start living a bit better life and address some of your issues a wee bit more right so the name of the game is always about feeling good inside Frogger I, I want to touch on going back to the <coughs> the writing process and uh, one of the bits from that recovery you know is it talks about speaking to relationships for your past and what I find really interesting about this is you've kind of put this, as you said, a semi-autobiographical, semi-autobiographical, see it? Semi-autobiographical. Thank God you're here. That, that's kind of what the book is, right? So there must be loads of people that are reading this that know you and thinking, and we'd a wee bit of a laugh in the way here, <coughs> talking about your, your partner, Justine. And I feel that there must be people reading this book that think, is that me he's talking about? Or uh, am I in that? Or, or who, who does he mean by Tommy, blah, blah, blah? And was that ever going through your head when you were, you would go back to lockdown when you started putting, you know, pen on paper and putting this together? Were you ever thinking, oh, I don't really want folk to read this because they might, I'm giving too much of myself away or they might wonder if that's them I'm talking about? Or, Well, I, I think when, you're, when I'm writing that, I don't really expect anybody to see it, I don't think, right? Okay. So I didn't really think very much of that. Well, that's an interesting point in itself. So when you started writing this, you never particularly thought, I want this published, or I want to sell X amount of copies. You were more doing it for you. Aye, it was more just, I found it enjoyable to write it. Mm -hmm. And what I did was, I, I kind of wrote about half of it, and I was doing a bit of other writing for the Paranaro magazine guys, I don't know, a wee bit in there. So when I was doing that, I wasn't looking at my own stuff. So eventually I printed off the half that I'd written, and I read it in bed at night, just like I would normally read my book, just as though I hadn't written it. And when I finished the first half reading it, I thought, this is probably worth finishing it. I'll maybe look at this again and I'll do it a bit more. Was there any self-doubt? Well, when you're writing, you don't really think anybody's got to see it, I suppose. It's not until the idea becomes a reality thing, I might put this out. And I'm, I showed off a lot of my mates bits and bobs, chapters, you like emailed stuff, I emailed you some stuff and I emailed a few other guys. And I think I was expecting my pulse get back and go, wow, that's amazing, by the way, you should put, just to take away I didn't tell you it was rubbish, did I? Well, I... I it would probably be less than people saying that to me to quash any self-doubt, right? Because okay. I don't think I was riddled with self-doubt or anything like that, but it was a first-time attempt. So I just wanted you to go, it was all right, it's all right, you know? Yeah. So I shared it with a few of my pals. They got back to me and said it was all right. I thought it was all right, to be honest with you. I read through it a few times and I thought, no, I think this is all right. I think it's all right. I'm not embarrassed about this, right? That's the main thing. That's, That's a, such a West of Scotland. I, I, I think you're right. And I think we've had this conversation... I think about the change, the difference in your generation. Obviously, you're a weird mate, and you're a wee bit younger than me. And I think 
your generation have got a far more positive outlook on stuff. You're doing a podcast, for example, we know DJs, guys in bands, etc., etc. And everybody seems to be really supportive of each other. And I, I think in my generation, any time anybody was got to do anything, it was like... Who's you're ahead of your stations, but aye, were they playing it? Aye, 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 don't get above your station, pal. Aye. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of that attitude. So I had to shake some of that off, which was, was pretty easy, right? But when I was writing, I didn't think anybody was going to see it. Don't get me wrong, when I got it printed and I put it out there and I put the post on social media and stuff like that, it was a bit squeaky bum time for a day or two, I suppose. But the feedback's been outstanding. There have been loads of guys contacting me who I've never met before saying they relate to it and they've really enjoyed reading it. And I've really enjoyed all the feedback on it, to be honest with you. The reason I ask about that self-doubt is because you do open yourself up. You know, you, you're, you're really personal about this. You talk about uh, previous relationships. You talk about growing up as a child. You talk about trauma. And I think for anyone who's a first-time offer, even if they're not speaking about that, they must be nervous. Well, I think you and somebody else said to me about that was really brave of you putting that back at your end. And I didn't see it as being brave. But I think the reason for that is I've been in recovery almost 20 years of... Looked at all this stuff a million times, right? It's just part of who I am now. Mm-hmm. So it's no, it's nothing new to me. And it's, there's nothing that really stings or anything like It's not a big issue for me these days. But I think what I was trying to put across with the relationships and stuff like that, I was trying to kind of show the yin and yang. If you're in a position where you're spending your weekend drunk and you've got all these underlying issues where you've got high levels of anxiety because of your self-esteem is maybe not what it should be, you're riddled with fear a lot of the time, How's that affecting the rest of your life? Do you know what I mean? If you've got low self-esteem, what kind of relationships are you in or aren't you? How are you behaving in that relationship? Do you feel jealous? And showing the kind of knock-on effect to that. So it doesn't just affect your Friday and Saturday night. It affects how you feel about yourself. Your sense of self could be quite poor. Your self-esteem is quite low. What I was trying to show initially was relationships when you like that can be dysfunctional because you could be jealous. You could be... I don't be low self-esteem, etc., etc. So I was trying to make the relationships a bit more extreme. And so obviously people go, it's not, is that you? And you think, well, obviously I wasn't like that all the time. But I'm picking out negative aspects of myself or other people. And I'm trying to highlight people who are in active addiction. This is what their life's like. And yeah. this is how they behave. And I think on the, the addiction front as well, I don't want to harp too much on the whole recovery and addiction thing. So I think we've, we went through that quite in detail. But... I think what's important as well is that I mentioned trauma. Mm. And, and the book explores why people, not just Frankie in this, but also people who he was in relationships, might be doing things or might be experiencing things because of the experiences that they've had earlier in life. Yep. I think that plays a big part in this as well. I don't feel as if you're just saying that person acted out of character or that person acted a bit like a dick. It almost gives a full picture as to why that would happen. Mm. Well, in the recovery circles in, in recent years, Trauma is a real buzzword, right? People are seeing a big link between trauma and addiction. There's a guy called Gabor Mate who wrote a book about it a few years ago and he's on loads of talk shows and stuff like that. And what he realised was that when he scraped under the surface a wee bit and looked for people with addiction, most of them had experienced some kind of trauma in their past, right? And if you've experienced some kind of childhood trauma or adverse childhood experiences, another buzzword now, it's going to change you in a bit, right? And it's going to make you grow up with a hypervigilant nervous system, for example. And you might be on high alert. Your fight or flight mode might be cranked up really high. So you're operating on a different mode for your pal down the street. And that's kind of what I was trying to show the yin and yang in the books like with him and his mate, where he's living one way because he's got a hyper aroused nervous system. His fight or flight mode's through the roof. 
So he's prone to taking stuff into his system that's going to make him feel relaxed. Because relaxation without a chemical or a drink is an alien concept to him. So he has to put drink in there and it just takes all that away. He just feels, oh, I feel all right now. But he's making a feels like naturally because he's not got this nervous system that's hyper aroused, you know. What else is interesting about the book, uh, <clears throat> as you touch on trauma, but you also say, that doesn't mean that everybody who has a drink or takes a drink or takes drugs is going to have the same anxiety, the same levels of paranoia, you know. Everybody has an individual. So we, we've, exactly. sp we've spoken detail here about, you know, people are ruining their weeks or they're affecting their work because they're, they're out their nut at the weekend. But that's no, I think it's important to say that's no mm. everybody's experience as well. No, no, there's nothing about me that's evangelical about alcohol. I'm not anti-drink or anything like that. Mm -hmm. What I would, if, if there was a message in the book, it is about there's loads of so-called normal guys like you and I, one ninety-five. They've got a certain level of their life. They're holding it together, all right. Do you know what I mean? However, drinks affect them in a very negative fashion. And I think it really just comes down to if you pick up a drink, put it in your system, if you find it very difficult to stop, it might be time to overlook at that. Or if you put booze in your system, you can't predict what your behaviour's going to be. It's another good indicator that maybe you come into the category of people that shouldn't be drinking effectively. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I want to read a tiny wee abstract for this book, right? Because I think that it harks on what we're talking about here, right? It says, It still baffled Frankie at how normal this life was in Scotland. Why so many held on to drink with both hands when their lives were in tatters with it? Did it make you less of a man if you didn't take a drink? Were you seen as soft or some sort of weirdo? Never trust a man who doesn't take a drink once, he heard his father tell him. Aye, that's kind of stuff I, I did here growing up. I don't, I don't think that's changed. No. You know, I, I feel like you're, you're talking about your experience 20 years ago and I, I don't think that's changed and I don't know why. You know, it, it still feels like if I go to the, the pub after the football and I'm, you know, maybe not having a drink, I'm training for a marathon or I'm training for a run or something like that, folk will be like, what the fuck are you not drinking for? They, they do act or you do feel like a weirdo. You do feel like a social outcast. Mm. And again, it's, it's, I think we're conditioned into that for a very young age that people who don't drink are boring or they're weird or whatever it might be. And I've certainly thought that way back in the day. I thought if you didn't drink, you're a bit of a weirdo or you're boring. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Um, because I had shaped myself for it to think that enjoyment comes with alcohol. Yep. Um, and I think, though, what I see in myself is when I took alcohol out of the equation, Life's a wee bit uncomfortable for a wee while. You get guys like, oh, I couldn't go to a gig. I couldn't take the water and go to a gig. Mm -hmm. or I can't go to the pub and no drink. And that's your average Joe out there that's not got any issues with alcohol. They can't do it. They literally can't go to a gig and no drink or they can't go to the pub and no drink or blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's kind of the way we'll be shaped, I suppose. Absolutely. Let's talk a wee bit about the front cover of the book. Photo taken by another good friend of mine, Sean Bailey. Yes. Tell me about it. Why did you want it to be like this? Well, see, the publisher I used... I couldn't really fault be honest, they were really, really good, but how they operate is, you tell them roughly how you want to cover, and they give you a website where you go in and you put in football background, for example, right? I had a kind of image in my mind, yeah, I can't be with a football floodlight in the background, that was kind of somewhat I was thinking, and all the stuff I was putting up was bringing up like the new camper, some glamorous football stadium, and it didn't reflect... It's miles away from what you know. It didn't reflect <laughs> North Lanarkshire in the 80s or 90s, so... Um, I remember when we were in Bologna, Sean took loads of cracking pictures in his camera, so I asked him, let's have a, a wee play about your camera and see what we can come up with. And I thought, what captures the era better 
Burberry golf jacket on it, so I've got a Burberry golf jacket, so I've put that on. I think it's good as well. I, I got these small tattoos on my hand about a year and a half ago, so I'm, and they're kind of hipster now, I suppose, right? What does it signify for you, though? What's, what's well, the swallow? The swallow, and the, what I was trying to get on the book was the swallow just... To me, if you had that kind of tattoos back in the day in the eighties, it was kind of rough looking. Do you know what I mean? Yep. If some tattoos in their hands in the eighties, you, you were a you were a bit of, you were a bit of crackpot to be honest. So I just thought it looked a wee bit rough. It looked a bit menacing on the book cover. Yeah. I know it's not like these days, but back then it, it did seem to be like that. It hosting pills. Did folk drink that? <laughs> they, they did actually. I but that's the only can I could find in the bin next to Club One Hundred. But I was in the forty. That was the like for the modern era. Going to ask if you put your first can of booze in. 20 year or whatever. No, 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 I just took out the bin there by you at the pub. That's funny, actually. Funny you mentioned Club 100, because I was in Club 100 a few weeks ago before a mother game, and there was a group of guys from uh, Stockholm or somewhere in Sweden, and they were all drinking cans of wholesome pills. Were they? And I was thinking, the only other place I've seen that's the front cover of that book. <laughs> I did seem to be dead popular, I was on, but it was always women you seen drinking, to be honest with you. Wholesome pills was like a woman's drink back in the day, was, I think it's really strong as well. How's it went? I mean, it. it it seems as if the, the outside looking in that this has been nothing but a huge success. You know, topping the charts on Amazon, selling, you know, hundreds of copies in the first days. It, it seems like it's been brilliant and you're smashing it. No, it has. It's, it's went really, really well. Um, and we've had many a conversation about this in relation to how much should I be publicising this and you've been trying to push for a book launch and all that kind of stuff. And I put it on the social media, got some of my mates to put it on social media, um... Just tried to share the word as much as possible and asked anybody if they genuinely enjoyed it, would you mind sharing it? Don't read it first and see whatever you think. So the feedback I've had daily, people messaging me, stuff like that, has been phenomenal. And I'm a, I'm a bit of a people person anyway, so I've enjoyed chatting to everybody. Guys have got back and said, that was like my upbringing or I relate to it because of the, if you're not in recovery, the, the sort of fashion aspect, it might appeal to you. Some people relate to lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. I think what I was trying to put across was it's not just like a football hooligan thing where it's promoting extreme masculinity and like I was trying to show this guy's quite sensitive underneath all that, do you know what I mean? And he's got he's got feelings, there's a bit of depth to him. I was trying to show a bit about that aspect. So I think that's where it might be different to some other books. I've I've, I've not actually told you this, uh, and this is gonna wait for the hyper masculinity bit, but there there was one part towards the end of the book where I was greeting. Were you? I'll not tell you what part, but there was you, one you bit. Drunk at the time? <laughs> no. Tell you honestly, I, I thought I, I found it quite emotional. I really did, and you know, as as a friend, but also as a, a first time author, you know, I, I I'm very proud of what you've done, and I, I would really recommend to MD to go and get this. You can get it on Amazon, and it, it's brilliant. But I I think that you've been very humble here as well. You know, you you are you, you're the type of person, and again, it probably comes back to the place where you were brought up and the people that you're surrounded with. It's almost like you don't want to get ahead of your stations. I, I feel that this has been a great success. Yep. Uh, and I feel that it's only the start. Where, where do you go for here? Well, I think as the, as I'm getting their feedback, my confidence is growing and any self-doubts kind of going out the window now. So I feel what I'll do is I'll stick with promoting this a little bit more and try and spread the word and see where it takes me. I'm quite a big believer in just putting stuff out there and see what comes back to you. Mm -hmm. So if I could do a bit more writing, that would be great. If I could do a bit more something else related to it, that would be great as well. I don't know what. Um, I think sometimes what's for you will go by you. Um, I'm definitely going to put another one out next year. I'm looking at ideas for that the now, and I'm writing wee bits and bobs the now. So what I've done with this one is I'll, I'll learn with my mistakes. I apologise in advance for there's quite a few spell mistakes in there. Um, if I can 
because it was the first time around that, I had to kind of wing it all the way through. I didn't really know what I was doing, etc. So, so I kind of winged it on my own and done it to the best of my ability. But the next one, hopefully, I'm a wee bit with doing that, you know. So put it about and see if I can improve on it slightly. Who did you look at as inspirations? And I don't just mean other offers. Like, what, what inspired you to do this? I think I'm probably a guy that's always liked... I really like words. I don't know if I put a literature... What I like about music is I like the lyrics. I've always I've always loved song lyrics. I've always liked reading. I like poems. I like all that kind of stuff. And I think um, it's probably some I've got some sort of um, ability for. Um, never really seen myself with a great deal of ability in sporting up when I was younger. So I think I found my niche a wee bit here. Absolutely. Um, so I, I think that's just what inspired me. But I think it's just a good thing. That, that I think recovery's given me the ability to be myself. Be fully be myself. I don't wear false faces, and I'm just able to be myself because I've gained some natural self-esteem. And the reason I'm saying that is that I know the difference. Do you know what I mean? I, I truly know the difference. So there was a guy who wrote a book one time I read. I thought was really good called Noah Levine. He's a Buddhist guy, an American guy, and he's a punk. He's a punk rocker, and his book's called Dharma Punks. And he kind of finds himself in the recovery scene, and he's in Juvie Hall, not in America, and he finds meditating in a, a cell. Uh, because his dad was a meditator but when he gets out he gets into Buddhism but he doesn't become some extremist guy who like writes off his old life he still likes hardcore punk he still goes to punk gigs he still dresses that way he's head to toe tattoos and all that and that was quite inspiration for me at the time I thought well you can still be in recovery and be about self-improvement and be whatever you want to be and still like the clothes you like and still have some of the powers you've got I mean, just be who you are don't try and be somebody else, do you know what I mean? That was quite inspirational. I think there's an underlying theme throughout all of this that you don't have to categorise yourself and put yourself in boxes. Exactly, exactly. Again, if if you're looking at that and you're wondering what life's like without alcohol, it's no boring, it's mere fulfilling, you'll achieve more in life, you'll feel better about yourself. I think initially people will start buying their stuff because you bear money or you'll get, this, you'll get the sunbed or you'll get some better clobber and all that kind of stuff and externally you'll look a bit better. But it's about feeling good inside. You to tell me, me you go to sunbeds, eh? No, me personally. I'm <laughs> I do not go to sunbeds. <laughs> you get the sunbeds. <laughs> I also feel as if you've got this wee bit of a fetish with Buddhism. That was mentioned in the book there and you, you brought it up again there with Noah Levine. Well, I, I don't think it's a fetish. <laughs> what, what I mean by that is, if, see, if you use alcohol or drugs as something that's going to relax you, right? It's something that's going to give you a sense of ease and comfort and you take that out of the equation. Yep you're going to have to put something else in the toolkit, right? Because for me, exercise might be one of them. And because I still suffered from being anxious at times when I stopped drinking, I had to say, well, I don't plan on drinking again. How am I going to deal with these feelings I've got? So meditating was just something I put in the toolkit for doing that. Do you still do it? I have meditated for a long, long time, aye. Right. You'd recommend yeah. it? Highly recommend it, aye. Right. What about cold water therapy? I could walk therapy. I think it's a great thing. That I feel like this is another trend in it. Not meditating, totally get that. I think that trend thing can put people off more than that. Now. I think it gets to a point where people want to be involved in this new thing. You're ticking all the boxes and here. You mentioned hill walking earlier, cold water right. therapy, meditating. So all these are good mm. things. You know, I, it's not. I mean, cold water therapy speaks for itself. If you look at the benefits here and how it affects the nervous system, it's a very positive thing. I think it's kind of got to a point now where people, everybody's doing that now, I'm into basket weaving or whatever it might be, do you know what I mean? But don't fully crowd day what's good for you, and everybody has to walk their own path in this as well. Do you know what I mean? There, there's, there isn't a one 
size fits all in recovery. You'll need to find your own brand of recovery, figure out what's good for you. Do you know what I mean? Some people will take extremes. Some people will still go to the bookies every weekend. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't really matter as long as you're feeling fulfilled. But if you've been somebody who's maybe suffered trauma when they're younger, you've took excesses of alcohol or drugs and you take that out of the equation, you're still going to be left the guy who was there before that. So you're going to have to deal with some of the emotions and you're going to have to get good at talking and try to express yourself a wee bit better. You're going to have to deal with your nervous system, which might be cold water therapy, it might be going up the gym, it might be meditating, it might be yoga, it might be loads of stuff. The, the good thing about the era we're living in now is there's loads and loads of options out there. If you're doing this 25 years ago, you're going to be able to go to cold water therapy or you need to do yoga in a church hall somewhere with 10 old women, do you know what I mean? Last serious question on that. For those that have read the book or that do read the book and see themselves in it or find it very relatable, what would your advice be to them? My advice would be to get honest with yourself about it, right? And see when I stopped about it. When I stopped drinking initially, in reality is I always knew I was far too fond of drink. Right? I always knew that about myself. But I probably just accepted everybody else's. I think with me in particular, I only took drugs for about four or five years, between 17 21 sort of thing. So my work cry was always there after. I don't take drugs, but all I do is drink. Everybody drinks. Do you know what I mean? Get honest with yourself. Try and address the issue. I will give you a life beyond your wildest dreams if you manage to deal with the underlying issues. There's plenty of help out there. There's plenty of 12-step fellowships. Um, cocaine is a massive issue out there as well. It goes hand in hand. I mean, you'll know yourself got to gigs and got to football matches and stuff like that. Everybody and their brother seems to be throwing white powder up their nose. And that is having a massive effect on people's mental health. Um, I'm sounding a bit like an evangelist here now, but it is having a massive effect. For See, for every guy, so there's a group of Terriers. Some of you have got to go to your work on Monday morning. There'll be one guy sitting there that's feeling suicidal, I can assure you. I appreciate that. You know, I think that's, that's really poignant and important as well. I'm glad you touched on it. You said that there's going to be a new book released in 2023. What's it going to be about? Where do you start? Again, what, what you know about, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'll probably relate to my working class upbringing, but I'll I'll try and bring some of my mere adult experiences in here. Um, I've no finalised living about it yet, but watch this space. Brilliant. Listen, thanks so much. Really enjoyed that. Uh, for those that are wanting to get the book, it is called The Boy with the Thorn on the Side. It's available on Amazon. Uh, I'll put all the links in the description. For those that have enjoyed this podcast, please go back and listen to some previous podcasts uh, and like and subscribe. Thanks very much, mate.